0: One through twelve. Uh, I would encourage you to flip there in the Bible. Just get yourself settled uh, in the scripture. There, there is a link alongside the Facebook event. If you're watching online, there's a link you can uh, pay attention to the outline on the U version event as well. So, so please uh, make your make that available to yourself if you'd like. We'll, we'll, um, but we'll be working through verses one through twelve. Now, let me set the stage before we get there. So, so last week our focus in the study transitioned from the greatness of Jesus and Jesus' role in the uh, in, in in the redemptive history or the covenant that he is being that's being established in him, and in and, and greatness in contrast and comparison to all those who came before him, it transitioned from his greatness and the greatness of his role to the greatness of the covenant that's being established through him. And and this new section is formatted very similarly to the first two sections. So the first section was about Jesus as the greater messenger, the greater prophet, the greater Moses. He's the great apostle, right? Like he's the one with the message that came from God. He's the greatest messenger that's ever come from God. And the second section was fo- focused on his priesthood. So he's not only a messenger from God, he is also a a high priest on our behalf to God. So he stands in God's presence mediating uh, on our behalf. So, so, And we saw his greatness uh, in those roles. And just his greatness as the son of God. We saw that depicted all the way through the first two sections. This third section focuses on uh, contrasting the new covenant against the old covenant. So similarly to the way that it was contrasting Jesus against Moses. Jesus against Aaron. All these other uh, actors in redemptive history. This new covenant is being contrasted. Placed right next to the old covenant. And it's being shown to be greater. That's the whole intent of this third section that's actually going to go through about chapter 10, verse about 18. But in doing so, let me just say this. In doing so, the intent of the author is not, it is not to denigrate, dismiss, or, or disparage the greatness of the old covenant in any way. The old covenant is great in its own right. In the very fact that God condescended to engage with mankind and enter into a covenant with them demonstrates its greatness. It is inherently great because God is inherently great and he is involved. There would be no covenant. There wouldn't even be an option or offer of covenant if God hadn't entered into it and hadn't uh, um, uh, made it an option. So starting with a very high bar, right? Like, the author of Hebrews isn't starting with a very low bar, like, ah, oh, you know, this, this stuff was terrible in the in the old days, but now we got something good. He's starting with a very high bar. He's setting the, the, the standard very high, and he says, hey, this, old, this stuff was great, but let me show you just how great what Jesus is doing is. And so he's setting this great new covenant against a great old covenant, and he's showing us the greatness of, of the new covenant is so much greater so much higher inherently because the one who's mediating it is greater than all those who were involved in the old covenant jesus is a greater moses better than aaron better than joshua he's a he's the great high priest right like all of these things he's greater in every way than all of these people so inherently the new covenant's greater But as he comes to this section, he gives us very specific reasons, very purposeful reasons to show us the greatness. And I'll I'll just briefly hit what we saw last week from the text. The new covenant is faultless, where the old covenant, there's fault found in it. The new covenant is faultless. It's it's, it's never going to be replaced. The, The new covenant is established on greater promises. The old covenant was full of promises, but the new covenant's promises are that much greater. And then Third, the thing we saw last week in the text was that the new covenant is eternal. It's not temporary. It it will last forever from the point it's been established to the point of no end. It is eternal. Today, in this vein, continuing in this this thread, in this perspective, this thought, we're going to see, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to show us just how great the new covenant is, especially as it pertains to the redemption offered and accomplished in Jesus' work uh, in this new covenant. So, let's read the text. I've set the stage. We'll, we'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. "...having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things." We cannot now speak in detail. "...these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, the regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But and it's so important to recognize that. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us now. As I think about our church and where we struggle and the things we deal with, not many of us are looking to the Old Testament or the, the Old Covenant law to... To justify ourselves, to run back to those rituals and, and the thought of sacrificing animals and trying to find some place that's more holy than the next. But, but I do think we, we wrestle with it just in legalistic tendencies and wallowing in guilt until we feel like we've wallowed enough or even believing that by walking into a building like ours, we've actually entered holy ground instead of just recognizing that we are made holy. So, Father, help us. Confront us, convict us as the text applies and is relevant to our lives. I pray that you would just confirm in us our our safety, our security, our redemption not secured by what we've done or what we can do, but by the perfect and fully satisfying work of our Savior Jesus Christ. Help us now, I pray, as we study your word, do your work, lead us to truth, point us to Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just give you the main point, the, the idea, I think, that's behind this passage that we've just read, and it, it, it's going to be kind of the point that I seek to build out across the, the sermon, but it is this, the redemption of the old covenant couldn't, the redemption the old covenant couldn't and was never intended to, inc- to accomplish has been secured for us by Jesus once and for all. The redemption the old covenant couldn't and was never intended to accomplish has been secured for us. By Jesus once and for all. For all its beauty, for all its structures, for all its instructions, its regulations of worship. Despite the fact that you were able to see, to taste, to touch, to, to, to physically experience the different components of the old covenant. Despite, that fact, despite the fact of its existence, it could not come close to accomplishing and providing the redemption secured for us by Jesus Christ. Now, we saw last week, the, 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 and it's already been mentioned this morning, the weakness or the fault or the, the limitations of the Old Covenant. In fact, last week, uh, if you've got your Bible open, just look back up in the Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 8. Last week, the word is actually fault. He says in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been, there, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If that first covenant wasn't to blame is what it's essentially saying. If that first covenant didn't have some fault in it, there would be no reason to look for a second. There would be no reason for Jesus to die if there wasn't a fault in the first covenant. Then second, it goes on in verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And he goes on into the quote, the reference from Jeremiah chapter 31. The, the idea here is that there's something off. There's something missing. There's something wrong with the Old Covenant. Now, I sought to show this to you. I sought to, to, to teach this and demonstrate this to you with two different phrases. One of those phrases was the fault of the Old Covenant is found in what we couldn't do and what we can't accomplish as people. Mankind is inherently sinful and is unable to perfectly obey. We know this, right? This is not something new to us as people. We recognize that we struggle with obedience. Now, imagine your life as someone who's unregenerate, who's been given this external covenant and all these rules to obey, but no transformation of heart, no desire, no change of will, no change of mind, no change of heart. Imagine seeking to obey all those rules without the internal transformation. So, so, so clearly the fault he finds is with people. They are unable to obey. But I also demonstrated a second perspective that, that's dealt with in, in that text and in actually today's text is that the fault of the Old Covenant is found in what it, it couldn't accomplish. The Israelites were given all the rules. They were told what to do. But the law brought with it no transformation in in, in which it would empower or enable perfect obedience. Here's the rules. Follow them. You're on your own. Not totally, but essentially, you have to follow them of your will according to your power and your ability. So what we need to recognize, though, is that the fault or the blame still deals or still falls on the people who couldn't obey. The law isn't found guilty or isn't deemed unrighteous simply because people can't obey it. A good law doesn't depend on the, on the ability of people to obey it. A good law is given by a good God. Its righteousness and its goodness is given, is, is based on the fact of who gave it. It's justice, it's rightness, it's everything about it. Is, so, so the law isn't to blame. That The people are, the, are to blame. They're the ones at fault, but their inherent sin exploited the limitations of the law. And so while the fault clearly falls on the, on, on the Israelites, it certainly is shown to be faulty because it's limited in its ability to actually transform. Here's the thing. If we're not careful, we're going to all of a sudden say, "Oh, wait a minute! Then, then all law is bad. We just got to get rid of it." And and even New Testament laws and commands—well, what what place do they have? Right? Like, we got to be very careful here, because God gave that law. It's not bad. It's right. It's good. The 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 weakness, the fault, the blame falls on those who don't and can't obey. And in fact, I think what the author of Hebrews is here trying to demonstrate to us is that though the fault or the blame falls on the Israelites, their inherent sin exploiting and abusing the law of God reveals the limitations of the Old Covenant. He wants us to see those limitations were actually there by design. It was purposed that way. It was designed that way. So that to further encourage these people who were, were, were being tempted or, or potentially drifting back into dependence on the Old Covenant... To encourage them to remember that there is no life there. There is no hope there. Stay here. Hold fast your confession to Jesus Christ. Hold fast the hope in Jesus Christ. Right. Remember, this is the covenant that's going to bring redemption. So he needs them to see. We need to see see and be reminded. Those limitations, the, 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 the weakness of the old covenant, it was there by design. It was purposed by God that way. And so in these first 10 verses of chapter 9, we actually see those laid out for us. We're going, to, we're going to go through them. The Old Covenant's limitations. We're going to start looking. Look, look just in verses 1 through 5. Now, even the First Covenant had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, he's going to build out these two perspectives through this text. Regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. So there was instructions by which people could Approach God, interact with God—a place that that could happen. That, that everything physical about it, right? Like their their practice in it, and and the place that it happened. There's these two things that he lays out for us, and then he goes into showing us what that looked like—the tent—and he calls out the tabernacle. Now he doesn't point to the temple; he points to the tabernacle, uh, the tent that was was um, built by or assembled by, I don't know what's a better way to say it, assembled by the, the Israelites that first came out of Egypt. So they enter into covenant with God, and he says, build this tabernacle, and in this tent, there's going to be two rooms. The first room is going to be the, the holy place, and there's certain things that sit in the holy place. So there's the, the the lampstand, the the table for the bread of the presence, and, and these have massive significance. These are symbolically Powerful things that set there. There's some disagreement—not disagreement. There's some uh, struggle or or misunderstanding here in the text because it's it's known that the altar of incense set in that first area, but its work was connected to the second area, and he puts it in the second area. But we could argue about that for days. And every commentary I've read from argues about it for way longer, when he comes to the place where he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, right? He's highlighting them. He's drawing them out so that they're in our minds and in front of us. There's the bread of presence, the, le- the, the table with the bread of presence, the, the lampstand that's there. And then there's this veil, this separation between the first room of the, the tent and the second room of the tent. And behind this veil or this curtain is the, is the um, Ark of the Covenant with the Aaron's staff that budded—that's how God identified Aaron from among all the people of Israel. He identified Aaron as the high priest, and 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 then there's the jar full of manna. That, and just imagine this: this manna that's sitting in this jar, this urn. That stuff would rot if you kept it overnight, but it's set preserved. In in the Ark of Covenant, in the Tabernacle, it it was there. They loaded it up, and it stayed there. And God preserved it. And it's symbolic; it's representative, right? Like there's this stuff that's being shown to us in this. Not only that, there's the the tablets with the commands. So here's the regulations of worship sitting in this most holy place, and he's drawing out all these details, and he's showing us the the beauty, the the, the, the the physicality of it, the place that it all sits and resides. There's a way in which a person could actually put their hand on these things, although if you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you might die, but you, it literally was there. There's this physical presence with angels over the Ark, and This seat in the middle of these angels in which Moses would sit and interact with God. And and, and there's this presence of God being demonstrated, this power of God being demonstrated, this this provision of God being shown. And all located in this one place. And he shows us this beauty of of, of what they had in front of them. But then he comes and he shows us in verses 6-10, through as much as they had, as much as they had, is still limited. See, in verses 6 through 10, we begin to see that even though they had all this stuff, they had these priests running around, all this activity, there's still a limitation. The first limitation I'd point to you in verses 6 through 8 is limited access to God. So they have all this stuff in front of them for for all the evidence of God's provision and God's power, God's protection, His his presence surrounding them and, and located in the tabernacle. For all that they had there, there was a restriction. The vast majority of people would never be allowed to walk into the holy place. And the most holy place was even more restricted. The, the 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 priests would go into the holy place and, and they didn't go there to lounge right like this wasn't a place that they'd go to kick back in recliners and get out of the sun this was a place in which ritual duty is what the what the uh, author calls it here this ritual effort these ritual duties were carried out these religious acts were carried out daily going in and out taking care of the temple making sure the bread is is fresh and taking care of not the temple, taking care of the lampstand, keeping the oil filled and clean, burning incense. They had all of this effort that they were doing. But only the priests were allowed into the holy place. And then the most holy place, even more restrictive, the place where God would actually come down in the form of a cloud and cover the mercy seat. That's the place where only the high priest would go. Only the one allowed into that place would go. And then he would always go carrying blood to deal with his own sin and the unintentional sins of his people. There was a limited access to God. These, there was a limited ability for, God, for, for people to interact and to be as close with God as, as, as they would long to be or desire to be. There was this, this restriction, this curtain, this veil between them and God always and in every way. And any interaction with him was between them and some men. <clears throat> it's interesting. This was the way it was going to be, he says. In verse 8, this is the way it was going to be. As long as that first section, or that first tent. In fact, if you go to verse 8, it says, um, By this the Holy Spirit indicates. The way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section. Now, I don't know why the translators determined this time they were going to translate this word section instead of tent. But this word is, the, the, the word in the Greek, skene, is used several times through this passage. And in every other instance, it's translated as tent. So as long as this first tent stands with its two rooms, there is restricted access to God. The Holy Spirit has revealed this. This is not the author's interpretation. This is not the author's perspective. This is the Holy Spirit teaching and training people. As long as this first section stands, as long as this first tent stands, access to God is limited. That, that, that's what he's suggesting. What's amazing to me is that even though this tabernacle, this tent, no longer exists, it's been long gone, and, and the temple that replaced it was destroyed about 70 A.D. And actually, it was destroyed a couple times through history, but the most recent one is 70 A.D. Many Christians still act as if access to God is only available through a few select people in the church. When we first bought this building, I, you know, there's no evidence of it today. This, this part that I'm standing on the stage, this part didn't exist. When we first bought this building, there was a banister that, that ran uh, around the circumference of this upper level and even inside the center of the stage, there was a, a third level, a, a th- kind of a, a center tier. And on that center tier of the stage sat a table in which no one was allowed to approach. In fact, the banister had a had a had a piece on it that would be placed in so that no one could access it. No one could go in except those who were designated to be able to go in and handle the elements of communion. It was a Protestant church, but Episcopalians uh, uh, maintain many of the the high church functions and. And and what would happen is the only person allowed to go and handle the elements and actually allow people to participate in communion was a priest or one of his designees. Sounds very similar to what happens to the people in Israel at this tabernacle. Oh, you, you want to interact with God. Well, you're not allowed into this place of holiness where his presence is most clear. But come to me. I'll take care of that for you. I'll deal with that for you. The, tr- the truth is, we see, we see it happen even, even outside of high church liturgy. We see it happen outside of high church liturgy when, when, when clergy members are exalted in a way as if, oh, well, they got this special connection to God. they got this special, like God hears them. close like some, In some way, we're closer. Now, certainly, we should have a level of spiritual maturity that, that demonstrates the reality of our life with the Lord. But that doesn't mean that we're mediating or standing between God and his people. It, it, it's interesting to me that, that even, even today, we, we, we act as if if I just had this evidence, this, this solid thing in front of me, this, this piece of, you know, if God would just show me in some sign, this, this physical way in which I could be sure that God was real and God was true Then it would be so much easier for me to follow him. They had it all. They had the experience. They crossed the Red Sea. They watched the sea divide into two directions. And they walked through on dry ground. They watched the sea cover up the most powerful army of its day. And drown them. And they were saved. They were redeemed out of Israel. They stood at the foot of a mountain. And saw God's majesty and his power. In flames and clouds and thunder and lightning. And they were They were afraid. Moses, you got to talk for us. We, 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 We can't do it. So they stood at a distance because of their fear, because they saw the power of God. And every day they woke up, there was food on the ground waiting for them. And every day they walked in the wilderness, even after, even after rejecting God and not trusting Him and crossing into the promised land, their first run through. Even after all the complaints about water and meat and all the ways in which they they, they 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 tested God and resisted God and doubted God, their shoes never wore out and their clothes never frayed. And here in this temple, in this tabernacle, in this tent with these two rooms, these holy places, they had all the physical elements. Located in a central place in which they could see and continue to be reminded of God's power, of His presence, of His provision, of His protection. But for all they had, it was limited. They were limited in their access to God. I don't think we're worse off. You'll see why. So, first, the limit is access to God. Second, I would point to the limited effect on its people. The limited effect of the old covenant on the people of the covenant is what I'm referring to. For all the activity of the priests and the people, all the religious ceremony, all the daily efforts, all the blood of animals that were being sh- killed and, and, and the blood being shed. And I don't know if you've ever tried to figure out how many that is or how many animals died or how, much, how many quarts of blood were poured out. I, I mean, it's massive. And I've been into Third world butcher shops where I assume is probably very similar to what was going on around the temple. And it stinks of death. Now nice it's warm weather climate so I'm guessing they didn't have refrigerators. So I'm, I'm guessing. It stunk of death. And yet the author tells us in verses 9 and 10. It was all superficial. Look what he says. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Now, now he's already used this phrase, gifts and sacrifices, before, first referring to the priest who had to offer gifts and sacrifices, but also referring to Jesus as the great high priest who offered gifts and sacrifices. He's referring to the to the to the incense being burned and to the animals being sacrificed. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. It's superficial. So you just imagine this. Now, all the regulations of worship, all the knowing of what to do in worship. And they're ne- never actually empowered t- to worship. Now I don't know what you come into this service like this morning. I don't know what it is as you're sitting on your couch or at your table or wherever you're watching from. I don't know what it is that's going on in your mind. But as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I can guarantee it's not the guilt of our sin that keeps us from worshiping. Might be a lack of faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But he has cleansed us from sin. They never had that. They never got that. They, 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 all the opportunity for worship, there was never a pure worship. Because here they are, every time they, they stand in the presence of God, confronted with their guilt and thinking, I must do this now to earn my place or to keep my place or to, to appease this guy. Because they're constantly confronted with the guilt and the conviction of sin and the reality that they are unworthy to stand before it. So even with all the regulations to worship, there was never pure worship. But he goes further. He doesn't just stop there. He goes further. He's like in verse 10. But these things, the gifts and sacrifices, they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. These are superficial. It's not, 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 it, it, there's certainly a, a, a symbolic relevance to them, a, an important part of the, the interacting with God in his covenant. There, it's, not, it's not as if it's just, okay, I'm going to wash my hands, and I'm just, just cleaning dirt off my hands. There's certainly a heart attitude that's, that's intended here. There's certainly a symbol that they represent. But there's no transformation. It's all external. Let me remind you of what the promise of the new covenant is. Let me read it again back in in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. There's a transformation of of our perceptions, of our thoughts, of our knowledge. I will write them on their hearts. There's a transformation of the inner man, a a transformation of a desire, a transformation of, of devotion. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they will be my people. They will know me, each one the least to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. There's this completion of work. There's this finality, this transformation, the inner man being transformed from the inside out. No longer simply trying to put on this external reality and live up to it. But being transformed from the inside out with a new desire, with a new heart, with a new devotion. It's interesting to me the conception of Christianity by so many people in the world today. It's placed along every other, it's placed alongside by the vast majority of people in the world. It's placed alongside every other world religion. As if it's just something we do. That's such a misunderstanding of what God has done through Jesus Christ and his new covenant. Being a Christian isn't just coming to church or hanging out with Christian folks. It's it's not just about following some rules. It's not just about doing some things and not doing other things. Being a Christian first is about having a new identity. Being told you are no longer who you used to be. You are someone else. Everything about us has changed. That's why we talk about it in terms of, in becoming a Christian, that's why we talk about it in terms of conversion. Because there's a real spiritual change, a real new person, new creation coming into existence. We are not what we used to be. Now, I know, we're we're not what we're going to be, right? We're not what we will be. When Jesus returns and gives us our glorified bodies and we stand in eternity in His presence forever and ever and ever, live in His presence forever and ever and ever, we're not that yet, but we're not what we used to be. We're new creatures in Christ, transformed by His power from the inside out. The old covenant, all they had was a bunch of external rules brought to them. Surface superficial rules about food and drink, about uh, uh, ceremonial washings and, and, and regulations for the body. But that limited access to God was accompanied also by the limited effect this covenant had on its people. The third, I would, I would just highlight the limited, it, it's limited in time and purpose by God. Let me just show you this. At the very end of verse 10. He says, these things, they deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body, listen, imposed until the time of the Reformation, until the time of Reformation. Now, probably, I don't know that this is true of you, but most often when I hear the word Reformation, I immediately think Luther, nailing some stuff on a door, you know, that's the, the, the thing that pops to mind. Obviously, that's not what he's talking about. The, the, the word that follows it, I actually called it out while we were reading through, is what he's talking about. But, when Christ appeared, right? This, this covenant was only ever intended to last and be in place for a limited time, until the time of Reformation. The old covenant was never intended to stand alone or stand permanently. The old covenant was only ever going to last until God said, it's done and here's the new covenant. This time of reformation is the time of reformation of God's people, in which no longer are you measured to be of the house of Israel by birth and lineage and for men circumcision, at least not physical circumcision. The reformation of God's people, as we see played out across this book and as we'll get to as, the, as, as it continues. He continues to develop his argument, is built on faith. We we are identified and and united now as the house of Israel by faith, not by blood and birth and lineage. It's a time of reformation in which the sacrifice of animals cease, and the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ stands for ever. You ever wondered why even now today Jews don't sacrifice? They don't really even have a place to sacrifice there's been this reformation massive reformation it's the time of reformation in which the symbols and shadows of the old covenant in which served a purpose in their time and in their way in 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 which the 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 fulfillment comes and we're able to see all the things that they represented there's there's this whole view of 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 teaching and i've actually i've got a a paper that i'm presenting i'm about to present to the church it's on typology it's a, it's a part of theological perspectives. It's almost it, it, almost often, let me say, it, it's often overlooked by people in the church. Let me just give you an example of, of what typology is. Melchizedek was a priest in a, in a separate order. He was a type of Christ. Christ came in the, in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type, Jesus is the fulfillment. Earlier in chapter 8, he talks about, he, the, the author talks about the, the shadows and the copies of, of the Old Covenant being fulfilled by the, by, 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 the, by the real things of the New Covenant. So for example, we talk about the first tabernacle, the first tent in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2. We come down, we find out that as long as this first tent or this first section stands, that there's a limited access to God. But then in verse 11, we see how Christ comes and he, he, he establishes or builds a perfect tent, a perfect tabernacle. Uh, one, one in which that type and that shadow is fulfilled with the, the final and just and perfect fulfillment that's established in the new covenant. These types and shadows are these symbols. Are, are longing for and waiting for fulfillment in this time of Reformation, where in the time of Reformation, all of a sudden we begin to see that, yes, these things had a purpose. Yes, they had a a part of the redemptive plan of God. But they were temporary. And they were shadows pointing to and longing for fulfillment in in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the covenant that He's established for and on our behalf. It's a time of Reformation in which the limitation of the Old Covenant will be replaced and superseded with the accomplishment of Jesus Christ and His new covenant. This is the time of Reformation that the author is referring to and he follows it up immediately. This stand, it, it will be in place. It will stand until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared, and here it is, when Christ appears, the Old Covenant is displaced, It's superseded, And now the work of Christ is all we have. The redemption, the old covenant couldn't and was never intended to accomplish has been secured for us once and for all by Jesus. And look at what it says. When he appears as a high priest of the good things that have come, that are here right now, that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands. That's not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The work of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the new covenant finally accomplishes what the old covenant never was intended to and couldn't. So, So let me just hit three quickly, just three ways in which this new covenant accomplishes what the old covenant couldn't. First, God's eternal and redemptive purpose is accomplished in Christ. So where there was where there was an inability, a limited time and purpose for the old covenant, here comes Christ establishing the perfect tent, the perfect sacrifice and eternal redemption, and finally in him, in Christ, God's eternal and redemptive purpose is accomplished. We now stand before him not because we've kept our side of the bargain, but because we believed in the one who has. You think about this. For the Christian, we do not remain members of a new covenant people because we do certain things or follow certain laws or have, the, have done all the right stuff. We remain in the covenant. We maintain our participation in the, in the covenant by an enduring faith in Jesus. It's radically different. They were displaced from the covenant. In fact, God, there, there's a passage that speaks to God divorcing them because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. We never have to worry about being divorced because God will never divorce his son in the one in whom our faith is placed and the one in whom our acceptance is guaranteed. So we hold fast our confidence. As the author of Hebrews has told us over and over, we hold fast our confidence and and boasting in hope. We hold fast our confession. We hold fast to, to the hope set before us. We keep our faith centered on, our focus completely directed to. Trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, for this eternal redemption. He has freed us completely. Brothers and sisters, believe this. Believe this. This is what he's telling us. He has freed us completely from the bondage of our sin and death. We don't have to fear those things anymore. We don't live under their rule anymore. We are not defined by them anymore. It's interesting to me, there's a passage that's been on my mind over the last couple of days. There's been enough things happening. It's just struggling in my own heart and just trying to make decisions and trying to lead and trying to walk through a number of things. And and the questions kept coming to mind. The question that Jesus asked as his disciples were sitting in a boat, he's sleeping, and there's a storm raging, and they are scared to death, they're about to die. And they would go up and shake him, and, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die. He stands and he calms the wind and he tells the, tells the seas to be still. And he asks them a question, and that question's ringing in my ears. Where's your faith? where is your faith? I mean, you think about what we face today. All the different decisions. Should I put a seatbelt on when I get in the car? Well, what if the seatbelt restricts me getting out in the event of an accident? You could replace that with vaccine, right? Should I get a vaccine? Well, wait a minute. This is not safe. Nobody knows. For those of you that are convinced that the vaccine is your salvation from COVID, i say, where's your faith? What's really keeping you safe in life? For those of you that have arguments against the vaccine because of all the side effects, potential side effects, the stuff that we don't know yet, I would just ask, where's your faith? If God is sovereign over whether or not you get COVID to begin with or over the sovereign over the days of your life to begin with, he knows the side effects that could come. And he knows whether or not you might be one of those people that the vaccine doesn't actually work for. You get COVID anyway and get really sick. Is he not sovereign over all of this stuff? Is our redemption in him not made us secure in life enough? I'm not arguing for or against vaccine. I'm not arguing against wisdom. I want us to walk in wisdom. We're striving to, I would hope that today's decision to to basically encourage as many people feel necessary, stay at home. I would hope that it would demonstrate we are seeking to walk in wisdom in very difficult days. But for every one of us, we need to ask this question. Who's keeping our boat from capsizing? Being flipped over? And if it is... Capsized and flipped over by the storms of life. Where is our faith? In Christ, in Christ, God's eternal and redemptive purpose is accomplished. Live every day of your physical life with wisdom while placing your faith fully and completely in the Son of God who by His own blood secured your salvation forever. There's nothing to worry about. When you stand before the God, you will not be called sinner. You will be received as saint. Why are we of all people so angry and so fearful and divided over such a common issue? Well, if he just give us a sign, if he just give us all the physical stuff we need in front of us, Israel's had it. Israelites had it. it. didn't do them any good. In Christ, this next covenant, this next, this next accomplishment of Jesus Christ through this new covenant. In Christ, we are made holy and freed to worship. In, 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 listen, listen. The, the limited worship, the, the limited effect on God's people of the old covenant is totally displaced and superseded by the complete transformation of the new covenant. In Christ we are made holy and we are freed to worship Him forever. Again, with chapter 8 quoting that, that, that from, from the prophet Isaiah and the work that the new covenant was going to accomplish, he speaks of a, of a transformation, of a conversion, of a person becoming new in Christ. But as I think about these things, my mind immediately goes to a passage from Ephesians, which many of you know is a place I spend a lot of time. Ephesians 1, 3, 3, 4. I love this for this. He he says, blessed be, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here's Paul. Listen, just listen to Paul. And, and honestly, I just share in a, a small portion. They, they, I don't remember who it was. They referred to this passage 3 through 14 as a waterfall of worship. Paul just praising God for what God has accomplished on behalf of his people. Gushing with worship for God. But he comes to this place and he says, hey, praise God. I'm worshiping God. I'm praising God. Speaking then now in verse 4 of how he's chosen for what? Chosen to be holy and blameless. There's this transformation that God is affecting. He's chosen us to be affected by this, by, by this. But he's also he's also calling us to it. He's also affecting it on us. So we are made holy and blameless before Him in Christ. This is the truth. There is no other answer. We're made holy and, and so now our, our ability, our, our transformation enables us to join Paul in worship. So now not only does Paul get to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, we get to join him. Without the, without the weight and guilt of our conscience saying, but wait a minute, you're not enough. In Christ you are. In Christ you're acceptable. In Christ you can enter into his presence. In Christ, you can stand in front of Him and say, Praise you, God. Bless you, God, for all you've done and for who you are. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, because He is great and He is glorious and He is good and He is gracious. He's transformed us and freed us from the conviction of sin and the weight and guilt and bondage of sin so that now we can approach Him and freely worship Him. Finally, our consciences are free and cleansed to, to worship. And in Christ, the third accomplishment, the, in, in Christ we're given unhindered access to God forever. I've already touched on this. I've already mentioned it. But I, I think we just need to see it. By displacing that old tent and establishing a, a, a new tent, That Jesus, he's opened the way to God. That the access was limited as long as that first one stood. We're always going to be dealing with priests and high priests. Distance between us and God. But in Christ he says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only limitation now. He is the only exclusive reality now. But now when we come to the Father in Christ, there's un hindered access to god we can have as much of him as we long as we desire and as much as he allows paul again addressing the church at ephesus points this out ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 so then and he's speaking in christ this is the work of christ so then you are no longer strangers and aliens you are no longer people who are unknown and you are no longer aliens people who don't have a right to be there but you are fellow citizens and saints Do you hear that? Fellow citizens, we have rights. We we have privilege. We belong. We're saints. We're no longer sinners. We're we're saints. That means we're holy. He's calling us holy. And we're members of the household of God. We're not just members of a kingdom. We're children of the king. It's a step whole step closer. This is an intimacy and access that that in Christ we have and can enjoy. He goes on, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, now we don't have to go to a physical location. We are the physical location. You are the holy place. We together are his temple. He dwells in us. <laughs> Tell me that's not access and closeness and intimacy to God. So you didn't walk into a holy place when you came through the front door. You didn't have to sprinkle a bunch of holy water on your living room floor so that you could watch this live stream on holy ground. You are the saint. You are the one made holy. And you are the one in whom our Father dwells. And know what? So, the rest of us in Christ. In Christ, we are given unhindered access to God. The limitation of the old covenant is gone. The redemption the old covenant couldn't and was never intended to accomplish has been secured once and for all by Jesus. The, the, through the old covenant, God accomplished all he intended to. There was a purpose. Honestly, let me just highlight one, one we've seen already. Jesus, we would not know Jesus had it not been. We would not be able to identify him as clearly as we can. He was, he was shown to be the perfect and, and good high priest. He, he's shown to be the perfected messenger. He is shown to be the perfected sacrifice. He is shown by the old covenant to be our Messiah. So God accomplished all he intended to accomplish through the old covenant. But it was never intended to save The best it could ever do is show us our weakness and our need. So I would just remind you of the song we we started with. I need you. We we walk up and we look at ourselves in light of the Ten Commandments. What do we know immediately? We don't measure up. We need him. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see that Jesus fulfilled them perfectly and says, Now, now instead of your religious practice and your religious and ritual duties, trust in me. He's done them on our behalf. He's fulfilled them completely. And then he shed his his precious blood so that our redemption could be eternal. So we trust in him, and him alone. Let's pray. Father, I know that as I I, I look at this room even and then think about the people in our church that aren't here, I I think about all the different levels and different places we're at. There's one unifying truth. Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in Him. Help us to see His purity, His perfection, His beauty, His majesty. Help us to lay our deadly doing down, and trust in Jesus, and Jesus alone, that we might know this eternal redemption more fully, more completely, that we might enjoy its accomplishments more completely. That as we act, as we seek to walk in wisdom in life, as difficult as that is at, at, at times. that in every step our faith will give us solid ground. The eternal redemption that we've had in Jesus Christ will be stabilizing and will be unifying, and will empower us to live every day to your glory for the good of our brothers and sisters and to see the gospel of Jesus advanced in this world. I pray in Jesus' name amen sing with